Good morning again. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 57, verses 14 through 21, that'll be our sermon text for this morning. Isaiah 57, verses 14 through 21. <clears throat> Last week, you may remember, we started a, a, a short series on how we respond to God's grace. And last week we talked about uh, listening to God's voice. Next week we'll talk about receiving God's grace and then delighting in the Father's smile and then giving ourselves away. So those will be the next three. This week we are going to talk about owning our brokenness. Let's pray together before we read Isaiah 57. Let's pray. Father, we do come to you because we need to hear of your grace. And we do come to you as, as broken people, as sinful people, as uh, people who uh, experience suffering and sorrow. We come because we need mercy. We come because we need help. We come because we need you and we need the grace that you offer through Jesus. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to hear of that grace this morning uh, remind us of your compassion, remind us of the cross, and let us draw near, uh, draw near as uh, broken, honest, contrite people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 57, uh, verses 14 through 21. And it shall be said, build up, build up. Prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the Spirit would grow faint before me, and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of lips, peace, peace, to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Where do you feel broken? Where do you know, where are you sure that something's just not right? Uh, where do you wish you were different but have been unable to change? Where do you feel shame and guilt that just won't go away? Where do you feel sorrow that won't lift? Where do you feel inadequate like a failure, like you just can't live up? Where do you feel like an imposter just waiting to get found out? Where do you feel the weight of the curse 
the sting of death, and the reality of pain and suffering. I would put all of those things under sort of the general category of brokenness. When I think about sort of the whole mess of life, I just think life, life is broken. And I am broken. And I want you to think about your brokenness this morning. I know that's not particularly fun. Uh, maybe at first it seems like it won't even be uplifting. Uh, but I do hope in the end it will be encouraging. As we learn to own our brokenness and draw near to our Father for grace. You know, our normal approach to our brokenness is to hide it, to mask it, to, to medicate it, to pretend it's not there, to hope it will go away, to hope no one notices, at least. The problem is, in order to become whole, we need to first own it. We need to own our brokenness. And what do I mean that, by that? What do I mean by owning your brokenness? Well, you see it in verse 15 in our text this morning. Verse 15 says, God dwells with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. That's what I mean by, by owning your brokenness, having a contrite and lowly spirit. It means you know who you are. Right? You don't deny it. You don't pretend. You don't try to be something that you're not. You don't fake it till you make it. You, you own it. It means you have a contrite and lowly spirit. This is otherwise known as humility. Uh, or at least part of humility. It's, it's knowing who you are and accepting that reality. And as we go uh, along this morning, I want you to be asking, where am I broken? Where do I need to begin to be honest? Where do I need to own my own brokenness? Not just in the general, right? Not, not just in the abstract. That's easy, right? Uh, it, it's easy for us to say, I know I'm a sinner. Uh, but it's a little harder to begin to name those sins, where are you broken, right? Where do you experience the fall? Where are you tempted? Where do you sin? Uh, where do you experience the curse on sin? Where are you broken? And I'm going to encourage you to own your brokenness uh, for five reasons this morning. And uh, it's actually not in your bulletin. So if you turn to the back of your bulletin where the outline normally is, it's blank. So uh, for those of you who want the outline, I'm going to give it to you right now. But of course, we'll talk about it as we go. Uh, I'm going to encourage you to own your brokenness for these five reasons. Uh, one, because God is holy. Two, because you are human. Three, because you are sinful. Four, because God is compassionate. And fifth, because that's the path to wholeness. So these five things, because God is holy, because you are human, because you are sinful because God is compassionate, and because that is the path to wholeness. So why should you own your brokenness? Number one, because God is holy. Uh, the book of Isaiah is kind of a wild ride. Uh, in fact, Brian suggested that I preach on the book of Isaiah sometime soon, and I thought, no way. Uh, <laughs> There's so much going on, it's kind of hard to, to get your brain around Isaiah. Certainly hard to summarize in a few sentences. Isaiah cries out judgment on God's people because of sin, but ultimately promises mercy on account of God's grace. 
Israel would go into exile and into Babylon, Isaiah will say, but, but God would bring them back again. Some people think that in this section of the book, Israel is pictured as having already returned from exile, but they still fail to obey. God brought them back from Babylon, but their hearts are still far from him. And so what is God to do now? You know, one of the great themes of Isaiah is, of course, the holiness of God. And today, it, it's very common to think of God as, as your friend or as your buddy. Uh, I'm not so sure Isaiah ever thought of God as his friend. Uh, he, he, he thought of God as merciful, uh, he, maybe even friendly in a certain sense. But Isaiah never wore a, a Yahweh is my homeboy t-shirt. In fact, Isaiah's defining encounter with God was downright terrifying. Isaiah chapter 6, you, you, you may know the passage, Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 4. We read this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face in the presence of God. And with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And you can imagine this event probably left quite a mark on Isaiah. You can notice the echoes of it, of Isaiah 6, even here in verse 15. Verse 15 uh, reads, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. God is high and lifted up. He is exalted over all things, all beings, all creatures, all kings, all rulers. Right? Who is over all? God is, seated on his throne. God inhabits eternity, right? We inhabit time and space, right? We inhabit finitude. We are finite. We can only inhabit one space at a time. We can only inhabit one time at a time. God inhabits eternity. There's a mystery there that, that no philosopher can understand, no mind can fathom. God's very name is holy. That means his, his name, his reputation is set apart. He is like no other, right? Uh, we might say out of all the, the famous people, he is more famous than them all. And yet fame is fickle, right? That, that doesn't really work because fame depends on people. Isaiah is talking about the essence of the name of God. Whether people know it or not, God is holy. His name is holy. He is not like us. His reputation is not like ours. His glory is not like ours. There's no comparison. He's in a league of his own, right? He is holy. And he dwells in a high and holy place. And when you hear the phrase holy place, right, think of the temple. God dwells in the temple. In Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6, God's robe filled the temple. Here, God dwells in the holy place, but it's not just any holy place. It's in a high and holy place, right? That is the heavenly temple, the temple not made with hands, the temple that was the very pattern, the very archetype for the earthly temple. And so here is Isaiah's picture of God, the high, the holy one. Now, I readily admit that, that these words in some ways seem kind of abstract to us, high, lifted up eternity, holy, but 
the very point is that God is something removed from our everyday experience. You can't describe him in a way that brings him down to earth, or you haven't described him. And so how does this language of God strike you? What what does it do to you to hear of God, the high and holy one? Isaiah, of course, not only heard of God, he saw him in Isaiah chapter 6. Do you remember what, what that did to Isaiah there? Isaiah sees this grand vision of God, and immediately he cries out, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, what is Isaiah's immediate response to seeing the High and Holy One? He, He owns his brokenness. He practically falls into despair. Woe is me. Seeing the holiness of God became a mirror, right, showing him his own sin, a light illuminating the dark places of Isaiah's heart. He realizes that he cannot hide. When we are confronted with the holy God, the first thing we realize is, I'm not God. Just in case I had any delusions a few moments ago, I'm not him. This is something with which I am not familiar. This is not like me. Which, of course, brings us to our next point, right? Why should we own our brokenness? Uh, first, because God is holy, but second, because we are human. Verse 16 is, is interesting. God says, For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the Spirit would grow faint before me, and the breath of life that I made. Now, we'll come back to God's reasoning in this verse uh, in a moment, but notice what God calls Israel, right? What does He call His people? If God were angry with Israel forever, what would happen? The spirit would grow faint. The breath of life that I made. God is saying men and women would grow faint, but he refers to men and women by their breath. Why? Well, because breath signifies our weakness. It's, it's, it's momentary. It's fleeting. It signifies our humanity. We, have to, we, we depend on breath. In fact, earlier in Isaiah, God says, stop looking to man in whose nostrils is breath. Right? Man has to breathe. God just is. Along those same lines, right? breath signifies our fleeting nature because we're breathing one minute and, and the next minute, at some point, we won't be. We sung Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven earlier, right? And line four in that song uh, says, Frail as summer's flower, we flourish. Blows the wind and it is gone. But while mortals rise and perish, God endures unchanging on. Human beings, not being God, are fleeting and frail. And of course, the the fall into sin only highlights our intrinsic weakness through the advent of death. Right? James 4, James says, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. David in Psalm 39 says, O Lord, make me know uh, my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths. And my lifetime as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. 
When I talk about owning our brokenness, in part, I do mean owning our humanity, not because humanity is inherently broken. Our humanity is broken, but it's not broken to be human, if you can catch the difference there. Humanity itself is not brokenness, but playing God is. And so the refusal to embrace our humanity is actually part of our brokenness. You know, how often do you try to play God in life? How often do you try to know it all or fix it all or be everywhere or do everything? Do you rage against life when it doesn't go your way? I do. Who do I think I am to get upset that the world has not conformed to my will? I can't know it all. I can't fix it all. I can't be everywhere. I can't do everything. The world will not conform to my wishes. Right? Though, though humanity intrinsically is not brokenness, playing God is. So we must own the fact that we are not God. And aren't you confronted with that every day? I mean, re realistically, right? What, what, what do you do when you're confronted with the fact, I'm, I'm not God. The world's not working for me. Do you ignore it? Do you pre just pretend everything's fine and, and the world's going your way? Do you try to perform to live as if everything were under your control? Do you fight, get mad, complain, eat ice cream? <laughs> it's one of my favorites. Despair? What do you do when you realize you are not the Holy One? Might I suggest, just own it. It's actually more exhausting to play God than it is to admit that you're not Him. Maybe you've experienced that. Being a mere breath highlights the fact that we are human. It highlights something else as well, uh, which I've alluded to. Uh, human beings were not meant to die, after all. Our lives were not meant to be a breath that passes from the beginning, which, of course, brings us to our next point. Why should you own your brokenness? Well, because God is holy, because you are human, and because you are sinful. Uh, in a sense, when I talk about owning your brokenness, I just mean be honest, right? Be honest. And that in two senses. First, in that you're not God. Maybe you've been trying to play God, driving yourself and everyone around you crazy. But you're not him. And so own your humanity. But second, be honest in that you are out and out sinful. I know. I said it. The secret's out. Right? You're not fooling anybody. One of the things I find interesting in this passage is that there's this contrast between those who receive peace and those who, who don't. Verses 19 and verse 21. Did you notice that? Right? Verse 19 talks about peace, peace to the far and to the near. Verse 21 says, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Now, both of these groups of people are sinful. Right? The, the contrast is not between the good people and the bad people. Sometimes we get confused in that way. Israel was a sinful people. Everybody in Israel, Israel was a sinful people. God had sent them into exile because of their sin. Verse 17, uh, possibly referring to the exile, says, Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. See, not only does God say his people are sinful, he says he corrected them and they didn't change. They, they're the quintessential fools, right? They, they receive correction, but do not heed it. 
The blows of discipline do no good, right? The rod of correction did not have its cleansing effect. And I want you to think about this, right? God took one people, Israel, the children of Abraham. He, he took special notice of them. He brought them out of slavery. He gave them a good land. He provided for all of their needs. He taught them right from wrong in the law. He told them exactly how to live. He set up the, the government for them. Here, here was a utopian society set up by God himself. But what happened? They screwed the whole thing up. Right? They made a mess out of it. They rebelled against their savior, against their teacher, against their provider. Now, who could have possibly had a better chance of getting things right than them? I mean, what did they have to blame? Not, not their circumstances, uh, not their education, right? Moses himself was their teacher. Not their lack, not their want. God was their provider. Not their parents. God was a father to them. Verse 17, because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. In the way of his own heart. Right, let me ask you, when, when things go wrong, when you go wrong, who do you tend to blame? Right, your circumstances, your, your education, your, your background, your parents, your biology. Why do we go astray? You know, I, I've been a Christian uh, for just a little over 20 years now, I guess. That's right. And uh, 22, I don't know. I'm not good at math. But I, I've tried to be good. I've tried to do the right thing, but I keep falling short. Why is that? Right, there, there's something wrong with our hearts. Isaiah says throughout the book, the hearts of Israel were dull, arrogant, far from God, busy with sin, deluded, stubborn, and hard. We can deny it, and we can say, oh, not me. We can dig in our heels and, and, and on our own righteousness and say, no, I'm better than that. I'm different. But let's be honest. Now, sometimes it does feel harder to admit that we are bad than to pretend to be good. Right? Because we like the facade. Uh, we want to look good. We want to feel good. We want other people to think we are good. And really, if God is holy, we better be good. I mean, woe is me, says Isaiah. Why? Because he was unclean. Isaiah didn't mean ritual uncleanness there. He meant fundamentally seeing God made him realize his own sin, the uncleanness of his soul. So why should you own your brokenness? Well, because God is holy, right? Nothing will confront us with our own brokenness more than that. Two, because you are human, fleeting, a mere breath, which is, of course, a sign of the curse. Three, because you are sinful actively every day, right? You, you can't escape it because it comes out of your own heart. Four, because God is compassionate. Now, everything I've said up to this point will, will actually not convince you to own your brokenness. Not fully, not honestly, not in and of itself, if this is not also true. Yes, God is holy. Yes, we are but a breath. Yes, we are sinful. But if those are the only facts of the matter, then we're also damned. In which case, we really have three options. Just deny it, pretend, perform, right? Hope that somehow God will grade on a curve. Or despair, because you know that he's not going to grade on a curve. 
or indulge, right? Live it up. Ease your conscience with the pleasures of life because you know that what's coming isn't pretty. Denial, despair, indulgence. But a wholesale, right, honest yet hopeful account of your own soul, no, no, you can't do that. Not yet. Not with just these three things. But really, everything else that I've said so far is really, is backdrop, backdrop to what these verses are really about. So that's just the introduction. Now we'll begin the sermon. No, I'm kidding. Verse 15 says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. Right? The transcendent God dwells in a high and holy place. That we expect but also with the contrite and the lowly. Or verse 16 says, For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the Spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made. Right? Why will God not contend forever? Why not always be angry? Because He doesn't want the Spirit to grow faint. Right? Psalm 78 puts it like this, Yet He, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. Psalm 103 uh, similarly says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. See, God is compassionate. He rebukes, he corrects, but he does not want to destroy us. He wants to heal us. He wants to make us whole. Again, some, some see these verses in Isaiah as looking forward to the day when God, out of his mercy, would bring Israel back from exile, back into the promised land, but they would keep sinning. He saved them, but they kept sinning. And you might think, well, what's God going to do now? Maybe he'll give up. Maybe he'll throw in the towel. Maybe he's just going to get fed up with his people and move on. Look at verses 17 and 18. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners. So God knows our sin. It doesn't surprise him. It doesn't take him off guard. You become a Christian, God saves you, but you keep sinning. You struggle, you fight, but you fall and you fail. God is not up in heaven thinking, I thought you were going to be different. I had no idea that you were going to be like this. I'm out of this relationship. From now on, you're on your own. No, God says, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. God knows our sin, and he's committed to making us whole. That's the compassion of God, right? God is committed to revive and heal and lead and comfort. He wants to transform us, healing our brokenness. He wants to guide us, leading us back to himself. God wants to encourage us, comforting us, even when our suffering is our own fault. You know, God's not snotty. He doesn't say, well, if you hadn't done what you did, you wouldn't be in this mess. No, God has seen our ways. He knows the pain and suffering that sin has brought. But he says, I have, I have seen their ways, but I will heal them. 
Why should you own your brokenness? Well, the holiness of God certainly shows it to us. Our playing God and our sin are, are the root cause of that brokenness. But God is compassionate and loves us in our brokenness. We certainly don't have to hide it on his account, right? He has seen our ways and he will heal. Number five, why should you own your brokenness? Because that is the path to wholeness. The path to wholeness is through brokenness. Uh, Notice God dwells with the contrite and lowly to revive. God's presence with us is what revives, what heals, what leads, what comforts. But with whom does God dwell, right? To whom does he give his presence? I mentioned before that that, uh, there are some who receive peace, according to this passage, and some who do not. Verse 19 talks about peace, peace to the far and to the near. Verse 21 says there is no peace for the wicked. But what's the difference? Well, the difference is in verse 15. God dwells with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. God dwells with the one who knows his sin and who is broken over it. He is contrite. He mourns, says verse 18. God dwells with the lowly. This doesn't mean the lowly in position. The Bible speaks in that way elsewhere, but that's not what it means here. This says, him who is of a lowly spirit. God dwells with the humble. And isn't that what all of Scripture says, right? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God heals the brokenhearted. Right? The irony is if you deny your brokenness, you stay broken. But when you own it with a contrite and lowly spirit, when you, when you add to your brokenness a broken spirit, then God will heal, revive, and restore. Wholeness comes through owning your brokenness. And if you're not sure if this is really true, just, just think about the gospel with me. Where is Jesus? Where is Jesus right now? He's in heaven, right? He's at the right hand of the Father. Notice that the language describing God in verse 15 is actually all applied to Jesus in the New Testament. He's high and lifted up, right? Jesus is far above all rule and all authority and all dominion, according to Paul in Ephesians. In fact, as in Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6, Jesus is seated on the throne at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is eternal life, according to 1 John 5.20. Jesus' name is holy, right? He's been given the name that is above every name. This happened because Jesus entered into the heavenly holy place, not the temple made with hands, according to Hebrews, but the throne room of God in heaven, and there presented his sacrifice to the Father. But how did he get there? Right? How did he get to the right hand of the Father in heaven? How did he get to be seated on the throne? First, by coming to dwell with the contrite and the lowly. Jesus became sin for us. He bore our iniquity. He identified with us in all of our brokenness. Right? He owned our brokenness. So much so that Jesus became the, the, the representative of, of Israel and the nations, right? such that the Father, right, verse 18 or 17 says, the Father laid his anger, was angry with his people. But the Father laid his anger on his Son, at the cross. The father struck him, right? The father hid his face from the son at the cross and was angry with him, such that Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then the father said, though I have seen his ways, our ways that were laid on the son as our representative, 
I will heal him, lead him, restore comfort to him and his mourners. And how did the Father do that? Well, through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. See, what did that resurrection do? Well, it created the, the fruit of lips, peace, peace, to the far and to the near, verse 19. Right? The resurrection created the gospel, the good news that our sin has been overcome, not in the abstract, but in a person who overcame sin and the curse for sin through his resurrection from the dead. See, Jesus owned our brokenness, underwent discipline, but came out on the other side whole, raised. When we own our brokenness and trust in him, we find wholeness in him. Because in Jesus, we find the climax of the Father's compassion for broken people. In Jesus, the, the Father provided one who could own our brokenness for us, be broken by the Father's anger, but come out whole again so that we too might be made whole in him. So why should you own your brokenness? Well, because God is holy, because you are human, because you are sinful, because God is compassionate, and because that is the path to wholeness. Now, you might feel a, a little bit of a tension here. Um, you might be wondering, well, what's the difference between owning your brokenness and reveling in sin? Maybe none of you thought that, but maybe some of you did. <laughs> some people might be uncomfortable with the language of owning your brokenness because it seems to be permissive, maybe. I don't really mean that. Owning is accepting the reality that is, but the reality is horrible. And so it involves contrition and mourning, but also resting, resting in the love and compassion of God displayed at the cross. Right? Reveling is in sin is not accepting the reality that is. If you're reveling in your brokenness, you have not yet owned that the fact that your brokenness is broken. You think it's okay somehow. And yet I do want you to know that it's okay to be broken. Uh, you can be broken here. Right? You can be broken in this church. You can be broken in this community. Why is that? Well, because you can't be anything else. We should, have, right, we should have guilt for sins, but there is this twisted guilt that says, I feel ashamed because I'm a sinner, but the subtext is, uh, subtext is because I'm a sinner and you're not. Or I feel ashamed because I'm a sinner and I should have gotten over that a long time ago. No, you're, you're a broken person in a broken world. That is your reality. Now God can make you whole, right? He can heal. And there is growth and progress in the Christian life, but that growth involves fits and starts, ups and downs, and will always be incomplete in this life. And so there's no guilt for still being broken a, a year into your Christian life or 10 years into your Christian life or 50 years into your Christian life. You are broken. Own it. And look around the room. There is no one in this room that is less broken than you. And there is no one in this room that is more broken than you. When you walk into this room, you have no reason to feel inferior, and you have no right to feel superior. We gather as broken people. We strive for wholeness. We strive for holiness. We seek for God to make us whole and make us new, but we remain human, broken, and sinful in this life. And so we gather each week to own our brokenness afresh. 
so that the Holy God might dwell with us through Jesus and His Spirit to revive, to heal, to lead, and to restore comfort. This is who we are, broken and yet loved in Jesus. Own your brokenness and know that you are loved. Let's pray. Our Father, we are in awe of your mercy. In fact, we can't even begin to comprehend it. Father, open our hearts and minds to the immensity of your mercy and grace and love in the cross. Let us be struck with that afresh every day that you would send your Son to die for us that we might have life in him. Father, might that overwhelm us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.